The following message is by a guest speaker at Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Well, this morning, I want to bring you a message from John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. Pastor Reggie let me know that last week he shared a message about evangelism, and I want to follow on his heels with another message that has to do with perhaps one of the most important evangelistic encounters in history. You guys with me? So who would you like most to learn evangelism from? I think the person we ought to be most excited to learn how to give away our faith in Christ is to watch Jesus do it himself in action. And this is a story about a time when Jesus met a woman and gave her the gift of himself. There's enough in this passage, it's about 42 verses that I want to draw from, that we could develop an entire series of sermons. I'm not going to do that. So I want to just hit a few highlight observations for you about the way that Jesus found a lost woman and drew her towards himself. Now, before getting into the text itself, I want to set the stage a little bit. I want you to think about some of the the issues that humanity faces in this generation. Thank you. I mean, we're facing things like Pandemics and terrorism, poverty, I don't know what's happening here, there you go, drugs and substance abuse, human trafficking, sexual sin and addictions of all kinds. And I mean, I I started putting together a series of slides for all the different ways that the world is broken, and I had to delete, like, I would have just been going all day. We'd be, it'd be Monday, and I'd still be going through the list of all the ways that the world is a complete mess. And I want you to think about this. I look at, maybe we shouldn't dwell on that, but, you know, I want you to look at this list and think how heavy you feel about just how messed up the world is. I'm a pastor and a follower of Christ, and I get overwhelmed by just the sheer brokenness of our world. Sometimes I look at how messed up things are, how far we have to go. I don't even know where to begin. Do you ever feel that way? I know sometimes the Lord is moving through you and you say, that's it, we're going to tackle the world for Jesus. But there are other days you just go, there's no hope, man. There's just too much. Like if you start with this stuff, then this stuff is happening. If you, if you approach the educational, then the, the economic is breaking, and then the spiritual, and then the families are a mess, and medical issues. And you just want to throw your hands up, and you wonder, where will we find the meaning and the hope? Now, if we as Christ followers can be discouraged in this way, I want you to imagine what it's like to face life in this broken world without the hope that we find in Jesus Christ. You know, a a little while ago, this image um, was making its rounds on the Internet. I don't know, how many of you guys have seen this side-by-side image? So it's it's an image that appeared first in the Daily Mail. It's a U.K. publication. And it shows the historic St. Mary's Church in East London on Cable Street, a magnificent 
English cathedral originally constructed to house about a thousand parishioners. And at the last communion service before that photo was taken, 12 people had gathered to receive the elements and to worship Christ. Just a stone's throw from there, like about three or four blocks, I believe, down the road in another part of East London is the Broome Street Estate Mosque. And that's really being generous to call it a mosque. It's really a rented room in a community center with a capacity of about 100 people. And so many come out to worship every time they gather that hundreds have to overflow into the alleyways just to be able to participate in prayers and worship of Allah. Now, I'm not illustrating that Islam is on the rise and we've got to beat them at the game and all that. What I'm saying is there are other sources that people are turning to to find hope and meaning. And while all that is happening, the church, at least in the UK, but by all indications here in the United States as well, is in serious decline. In fact, nearly every denomination in the United States reports that they are either plateaued or decreasing in strength and numbers every year. And depending on which survey you read, each year that such a, a measurement is made, they will say around 90 to 95% of evangelical Christians polled each year testify that they have not led a single person to faith in Jesus Christ that year. So if only one out of 10 are leading lost people to Christ, it's a wonder that we still have churches meeting on Sundays. And so I want to issue a heartfelt and urgent invitation for us to take stock of our part in what's happening in the world. And I want to give you an invitation to take seriously the call to give away our faith in Jesus Christ, to invite people who are far from God to discover a relationship with Jesus Christ in their own lives. The writer of Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes 3.21, or I'm sorry, 11, made this observation. He said that God has put eternity into man's heart. And what he meant by that is that God has deposited in human beings a capacity for and a longing for things which this world simply cannot satisfy. And we're driven by that longing and nothing in the world that we come across will fill or satisfy that yearning in us. In other words, we were given an appetite for things that the world cannot possibly, even in its vast richness, satisfy or touch in a way where we walk away satisfied and full. I've got to imagine that for those who live in the United States without Jesus Christ, the experience is a lot like being adrift at sea. Can you imagine the frustration of sitting on an ocean of water and dying of thirst? That's the horrible irony of being shipwrecked, is that your greatest, most urgent risk of dying is that you will die of thirst within 24 hours. And I think that's what life in America is like for those who don't actively walk with Jesus Christ, is that everywhere around you, there is an abundance of things you can drink, and as you guzzle it all down, none of it ever really makes the thirst go away. And as you're chugging and chugging and chugging, the thirst gets stronger and stronger and stronger. Can you relate to that? Some of us, even in the church, can honestly testify that's the way our own hearts feel. 
Can you imagine what it's like to have no idea that living water exists? And so that's enough introduction. I, I want to dive right into the text. And like I said, I can't hit all the points, but I want to hit a few highlights of this incredible encounter Jesus has with a shady lady in the suburbs of Samaria. The first observation I want to make is that Jesus pokes his finger into the wound. Okay, Jesus pokes his finger into the wound. I know that's a bit of a, a graphic string of words, Imagine somebody with a large, bleeding, open, pus-filled wound, and you could tell it hurts and it's sensitive, and you just stick your finger right in the middle of it. And I want you to know that that was, in this particular occasion, Jesus' chosen approach for evangelism. Look at what the text records for us. Jesus said to her, Everyone, by the way, they're at a well, so he's not just coming up with some topic. It's right there in front of them. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So far, so good. Now, look at this. This is the ultimate evangelism. This is where in Evangelism 101 in seminary, you're like, this is where you want to get him to. The woman asks him, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. That's perfect. It's like a t-ball game, and Jesus just has to knock this one out of the park. And right at that moment, Jesus does the weirdest thing. He says to her, well, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, and this is how I imagine she said it, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, a few things to note about this encounter. Number one, it starts with Jesus asking her for a drink of water. You know, we're so bending over backwards all the time to serve the world, give away free things to the world. I don't think it matters all that much whether we give the world stuff or we ask the world for stuff. It didn't really matter to Jesus as long as it afforded him a conversation with people. In some cases, he served and healed. In other cases, he just said, look, I'm thirsty. Give me some water. He asked her for a favor, and she offered him some water, and that's how the whole encounter got started. And as he looks at the water in the well, he's contemplating this thing called thirst, which is an everyday urgent human need. It's a drive you cannot ignore for longer than a day without risking death. And as he's thinking about thirst, he realizes just what a good parallel this is for the eternity which God has placed in our own hearts, in our souls. And so he's got her thinking about water and how thirsty she is. And just at the moment she's begging for the living water, he brings up the one source of greatest shame and regret and failure and pain in her whole life. Now, you've got to understand, in those days, a woman couldn't just ask for a divorce. For her to have been married five times meant she was dumped five times. It meant that she had 
experienced the temporary acceptance of a man who had taken her into his home and under her protection, and she had depended on him for livelihood. And just like that, that man had swept the rug out from under her feet, had rejected her, had marked her as now further used goods. She was developing a reputation with every divorce so that she could no longer walk around town with her head held up high. She had such a difficult past with men. In fact, it is why she was gathering water at the heat of high noon. Most women in the village would gather water either at the break of day or at sunset when it was cooler. Because nobody likes doing manual labor when it's really, really hot outside. The reason she was at the well at this hour was because she knew that if she went then... She would not encounter any of the judgmental glares of the other women. You know how it is, ladies, right? Um, Men are just more crass to each other, but women, woo, you guys take them razor blades out and cut, don't you, sometimes? And, you know, there she would be gathering the water, all the other women like, oh, hold on, hold on, there she comes. Mm -hmm." And she would not have anybody say a word to her, but just the looks would say everything she needed to know. One of these things is not like the other. They'd be like, well, she can go at noon because she brings her own shade with her. You know what I'm saying? This woman knew what it was like to feel disgusting, to feel like she was dirty. And, you know, what I've noticed about people who are very far from God, who are not living lives of righteousness, is that they know exactly what they're doing. Nobody needs you to tell them just how dirty and broken and messed up they are. They're punishing themselves every day. That's self-destructive failure, uh, um, behavior. Half the time, it's self-punishment. It's a way of saying, I stink, and I don't care what I do to myself anymore. And they don't really need us to remind them of the brokenness so much as why the way they're trying to fix it is not working. I don't think Jesus was trying to be cruel to this woman. I think what he wanted to tell her was before you can see the gospel as the antidote, you have to first see it as the cure for the disease. It's not just a value-added new accessory for your life. It is the cure for what is killing you. It is the very thing you're trying to find, but in all the wrong ways. This woman decided to quench her thirst in life by finding the acceptance of men. It is the strategy that a lot of women have taken over the years because everybody is looking for a source of power. Everyone wants to know, what do I have in my quiver among my assets that I can use to make my life better? And whatever you find you have the most of, that's what you will use to try to get a better life for yourself. For some, it's their intelligence. For others, it's their huge body, their athleticism. For many people, it's their physical beauty, or if not that, at least their sexuality. And we will use what we can at our disposal to try to make the thirsty feelings go away. And Jesus wanted her to know that the way she was trying to quench her thirst was never going to work. And he was... He was sticking his finger directly into her deepest, most tender wound to say, how does that feel? Because after five attempts at trying to heal your heart through the love of a man, it's just getting worse. And now you have given up entirely on marriage. You're still shacking up with the guy, but you don't even believe in marriage anymore because you've been burned five times. 
You are dangerously close to giving it all up because you have looked for water in all the wrong places. Now, the reason I'm sharing that for you is because I think that the church has become completely full of wusses. We are so afraid to bring up any subject to offend or wound in any way. And so we try to talk about eternity and life and water and thirst with people while all the while we skirt around the central issue that's driving their life. It's like we have these people behind their backs. We know exactly what's going on. Oh, there she comes. Oh, there's that guy. Look at him. He's driving his massive car and he's got this massive motorcycle and he's always wearing tight muscle shirts. He's got a midlife crisis going on. Something, and we, we know exactly what, because we advertise it for everyone to see. This is my issue and I'm working it out in a very public way. And I think it's a secret, but everyone can see what's happening. And we whisper about each other all the time. But when we're together, we act like that's not even happening. We talk about all these other secondary issues because it's too sensitive and too personal to talk about the fact. But look what Jesus does. You lady, look. You suck at love. You and men, it's not working out at all. You are known as the town shady lady for good reason. You have tried so hard to find your worth in the acceptance of men. And let me ask you something. How's it working out for you so far? Do you feel good about yourself? Do you feel like this was the answer? Because if he does not address it, she will never understand that the water he's offering her is to quench that very thirst that drives everything for her. I've known men in every generation who it's so clear within an hour of knowing them, the entire driving motive of their life is to win in the business game, to make tons of money. They don't even spend any of it. They have terrible taste in everything. Their homes don't look nice. Their car doesn't look nice. Their clothes sure don't look nice. But they have millions and millions of dollars because it's about winning. It's about validating, proving something. And everything they do is justified and explained by the quest to win more money. And yet people try to lead them to Christ and never once talk about their love of money. Hey, that's really personal. You don't know him well enough to... Then why even bother? Why would you talk about deep, weighty, eternal things and bypass the one human motivation that is defining everything for this guy and you know it? Are you with me? Am I just offending you so much you want to stop listening? Do you hear what I'm saying to you? I think Jesus was not the kind of guy who bypassed the central issue of a person's life. Because otherwise, all you're saying to people is, hey, would you like to get up extra early on Sunday and give up 10% of your gross income and stop doing all the things you enjoy and feel guilty very often? And um, would you like to do that? Because that's what I'm offering you. Who wants that? As a lifestyle, Christianity doesn't have as much going for it as you might think. But as the cure for our disease, as the living water for our defining thirst, it is everything we are looking for. And if we will not talk about the thirst, how dare we peddle water? It's not poking around in someone's private business. It's not being offensive and invasive and overbearing. It is simply saying, I know that your whole life can be explained by one unquenchable thirst. 
and let's talk about it so that I can introduce you to the one who offers you real water to quench that deep down dry place in your soul. And there's a second motive I think Jesus had, which is this. Here's this lady at the heat of noon expecting to run into no one. And, oh, geez, of all the days, there's a Jewish rabbi, a religious leader, and his entourage. And she's like, I really don't need this today. I don't need any more BS today. I don't need some religious guy talking down his nose at me. And so she's waiting for it. And instead, he's really nice to her. He's civil. He's courteous. He treats her with dignity, and she doesn't know. So she's thinking maybe, oh, maybe he doesn't know my reputation in town. And then maybe close on the heels of that was another thought. He's kind of tall. He's kind of strong looking. Maybe I got a chance for number seven. And so maybe she's thinking all kinds of thoughts, and she's thinking what many of us think. You don't know me yet, which is why you like me so far. And then Jesus drops the bomb on her. Oh, no, I've known the worst thing about you from the minute you got here. But I've still accepted you and loved you and treated you with dignity. I knew what kind of woman you were all along. I wasn't treating you nicely because I didn't know. I was treating you nicely because I did know. And just like that, in that moment, I believe in his acceptance of her, in her imperfection and fallenness, she finally gained the courage to think maybe I can accept myself and find my way home. He knew the worst thing about her, and he loved her, and he treated her kindly. I think that's what some people are looking for. They want to know if God will have them in their present condition because they've already decided on their own that that couldn't possibly work. And I believe that's one of the first things we want to communicate, both directly and indirectly in evangelism, is that your Heavenly Father will have you right now as you are. Let me give you a second observation. And that is that the people who are far from God are more ready than you think to start a relationship with Him. Jesus says in verse 35 to his disciples, do you not say, basically saying, isn't this a common saying? There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. How many of you have kids? Okay, so maybe this happens in your house like mine. Sometimes my kids aren't really listening to my lecture you know, my wife gets a little sharp and angry, and, you know, so it's easier to know when she's upset. My kids know that when you get daddy upset, you're going to sit for an hour and a half lecture. That's worse to them by far than my wife's tantrums. And sometimes I pick up the fact that they're just waiting for me to stop making sounds. They're not listening to anything I'm saying. They're just enduring it until it's over, and they're thinking about something else. So I have to physically grab their faces and make them look at me. And sometimes I literally have had conversations like this. Do you know that what you did was wrong? Mm -hmm. And I'm holding their heads while they make eye contact. As if to say it's possible to look towards something and not look at it, to really see what's there. That's, that's the feeling of what Jesus is saying. You guys think that you understand the condition of the crop, but you don't. He's saying this to his disciples. 
You look from a distance and you think you got it all figured out, but the truth is you don't you need to look, open up your eyes, lift up your eyes, take a look at the reality of the situation. Here's why he was saying this. They had gone on a grocery run. Isn't it nice to know that Jesus didn't just keep making bread appear supernaturally? When they were hungry, they went to the town, went to the store, bought food and ate it. And so his disciples are coming back from town, arms loaded with groceries, and they're having a crisis because what they see is Lord, you're so wise in spiritual things, but you don't know anything about society. Do you have any idea? Does this guy know who he's talking to? Imagine if you walked into a scene where you see Dr. Steve laying arm in arm on the grass in front of a building with some woman who's not Betty, and he's just talking to her. And and you're like, that looks so shady. Does he know? And, you know, like, it's a compromising situation. Like, that's not good, Dr. C. You can't do that. And you're so worried that this fool who knows so much about the Bible but doesn't know anything about society has no idea how much he's damaging his reputation. That's the crisis mode his disciples entered. So they came rushing over. Teacher, teacher, come here. You can't talk to her. You're a Jewish religious leader. She is, you know, (laughs) you cannot have yourself seen in public with her. And he's getting upset in his heart because he knows what they're thinking. He discerns the calculus going on in their minds. He says, look, you idiots. You come back from your grocery run and at a distance, all you see is a woman dressed a certain way, gathering water at noon, which, you know, uh why would she be here, Lord? Think about it. And they're making all these assumptions from far away. He goes, you have no idea what you're talking about. From that distance, all you see is a label, a woman in a category but you have no idea who she is. Is that the way you look at the world? By labels, categories, appearances from a distance, do you not see the human being I'm talking to? Tell me one biographical fact about this woman that the rest of the townsfolks don't murmur about all the time. You don't see people, you see categories. That's the rebuke that Jesus is giving to his disciples. And they're assuming that this shady lady has no interest in spiritual things. And he's saying, you don't know how thirsty she really is. Why, in fact, just before you got here, she was practically begging me for living water. What do you see when you look at her? How many of you guys remember this dude? Do you know who that is? It's Charlie Sheen. When I first wrote the sermon at, for Harvest years ago, Charlie Sheen was very publicly losing his stinking mind. Do you remember that meltdown he was having where he was saying crazy stuff? In fact, that week that I was writing this message, I got this email for XM Radio advertising a whole new station called Tiger Blood Radio where 24 hours a day they would just play sound bites that crazy Charlie Sheen said and then just judge him and crucify him publicly all day, all night. And the truth was, I was getting into it because I'm like, man, this guy's nuts. Making 800000 an episode for a number one TV show is not good enough for him. He's got to have this meltdown in public. And everything he says is crazier than the last thing he said. Do you remember that? And so I was kind of jumping on the national bandwagon going, oh, what is Charlie going to say now? And I was tuning into this radio station. And then the Holy Spirit just grabbed a hold of me. In fact, I think he elbowed me in the head. <laughs> And I never thought I would say this in a sermon, but for about an hour in my home office, I was on the floor weeping and praying for Charlie Sheen and for his salvation. 
I didn't think I would ever speak those words in that order, but that's the truth. I was so broken that week for Charlie Sheen's spiritual condition because I happened to be writing this message, and just like that, the connection was made, and I realized what was happening. Now, I don't have to go as far as Hollywood to find people in my life that I just assume are never going to walk with Jesus Christ. You know what's interesting to me is the people I have written off are not the most broken people. The people I've written off in my life are the most unbroken people. The ones who are so good looking, so athletic, so successful, so wealthy, their homes are always clean, their clothes are always lint free, their hair is always perfect. Those are the people I write off most readily. They're never going to need you. How am I going to convince them they need saving? Um, Jesus wants to save you from your awesome life, which is even better than my life. And I am jealous and I fantasize about switching places with you. Jesus wants to save you from this thing that you're living every day enduring. I write those people off. I'm confessing my sin to you because I feel like they don't need saving from anything. They have everything people want. Who do you write off? Who do you see from a distance that you presume in your heart has no interest in Christ because they're either too fried or too satisfied to have any ear for Jesus Christ? I believe the challenge that he gave his disciples is good for us to hear. That if we actually look at people beyond the categories and labels, what we're going to discover if we really listen to their hearts is that people are more ready to hear the good news of Jesus Christ than you could imagine. Every time in the last couple years I've taken a risk with a non-believer and introduced faith into the conversation, every single time without fail, I've been surprised at how positively that turn in the relationship was received. I don't think we're worried about the unbeliever's feelings I believe we're worried about our own feelings, about our own insecurities and embarrassments, about being outed forever in that relationship as a Jesus person. I think the reason we so often don't go there is to protect ourselves, not to protect them from our invasive message, but to protect ourselves from having to say to people in public, I know who gives us hope. And those people bearing the weight of this messed up world without Jesus, are more ready to hear that good news than you can imagine. Now, I just want to say a third thing here, a a brief thing before I, I give you the last point. And that is that when Jesus talks about this work of bringing lost people home to God, he talks about two phases of that work, the sowing and the reaping. And what's interesting is as he talks about both of them, he calls them both form of labor. Meaning whether you are a sower or a reaper, there's nothing passive about bringing far people away, uh, who are far, far away from God, home to Jesus Christ. The act of taking a lost person and connecting them to their Savior cannot happen in a passive advertising fashion. When I worked in corporate America for a number of years... We had casual Friday, and I'll be honest with you, for the first year I worked there, my entire casual Friday evangelistic attempt was once a month I would wear a retreat T-shirt. But even then, 
the retreat t-shirts were so different than when I was in college. When I was in college, it would be this giant copyright infringement of a Reebok logo or some other thing that we slightly modified to be a Christian message. On the back was like an entire back full of King James Version Bible verses, right? It just screams, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. Now the message is so subtle because everyone's thinking, I got to wear that to work. I don't want it to be so bad. So we just put this weird symbol and the whole thing is, ask me what the symbol is. And I'll tell you the story. So no one can figure out whether you're Buddhist or Muslim or Christian just based on your shirt. Because we don't put Bible verses. We just put 316. What's happening at 316? Oh, oh, no, no. It's not a time, baby. It's a Bible verse. So that's how we do it. So I was trying to wear my retreat t-shirts. Even then, I'm like, no one knows what this is. These passive attempts we make to advertise in safe ways. I'm kind of a Christian. I go to church. You know, we say stuff like, oh, I'm so tired today. Why? Were you drunk yesterday? Oh, no. Long day at church, you know, because I, I go there over the weekend. And then we say, Lord, thank you for giving me the courage to be on the front lines of the spiritual battle to bring lost people home. You know, look, whether you are a sower or a reaper, it is a labor. It happens because you intend to do this for the sake of Christ and lost people. Now, when I poll people, most people in most churches I've preached at will say about, I'd say 75% would say, uh, I'm more of the sower, meaning I'm planting seeds left and right, but I'm never inviting people to start a relationship with Jesus. And I remember hearing this one testimony at a church. I was at a retreat, and they had a baptism service at the retreat, which I've never seen. So we're at the retreat center swimming pool, and as people were giving their testimonies, one guy said this. I went to church for years, and I gathered sort of through osmosis that Jesus Christ was important. But, you know, in all the years I went to church, no one actually told me how it worked. No one actually said, like, hey, I have to, like, start this relationship with Jesus. I just assumed that because I was going here and I was really positive, I dug Jesus. I liked everything that happened at church. I was clapping to the songs. I thought I was Christian. And, in fact, I think he was. But the fact was nobody actually told him how it happens. They just assumed he'd figure it out by himself. I think it's important that not all of us plant seeds and nobody brings in the crops. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And so I want to invite you to take a risk in a relationship with somebody who is far from Jesus Christ. And at some point, do some reaping. Let them know That just being fond of my Christian friend doesn't make me a Christian by extension. But that Jesus Christ wants to have a relationship directly with them. I can say more about that, but I'm worried I'm going to run out of time. So I'm going to just give you this last point here. And that is that in the end, in every evangelistic encounter, Jesus is the message. You know, when you ask people why they feel apprehensive about sharing their faith... The most common answer I get back is, what if they ask me a question I can't answer? I don't want to look like a fool in front of these people. I mean, if they ask me a good question about spiritual stuff and I don't know the answer, isn't that going to turn them off? 
I don't think people are atheists because they know everything about atheism. Here's the truth. Look, if I'm already a Christ follower in my standing ignorance and it's good enough for me, it's got to be good enough for somebody else. And I don't mean that ignorance is a virtue. I don't mean you should just love not knowing stuff. What I mean is you're already saved with all the stuff you don't know, which means the essence of what it means to have a relationship with Christ doesn't rest in your large body of theological expertise. At the end of the day, the true and essential message of every evangelistic encounter is exactly that, that I once didn't know Jesus Christ, and then I met him, and he has made all the difference in my life. John records a remarkable thing. The minute she has this relationship with Christ, she drops her water jar And it says the woman went back to the town and said to the people. Now, you know something is happening in this woman because she runs immediately back to the very people who made her life miserable. And she says to them, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. I'm sure one smart aleck can tell us, like, lady, we could tell you everything you ever did, all right? Everybody knows what you did. But I think what she's saying is this. She's saying, no, you don't understand. He's different. He knew everything I did just like you guys, but not once did he condemn me in it. He didn't at any level act like what I was doing was good or right, but he never once made me feel condemned by it. Now, that's about as simple a message as you can get. She has no idea what hypostatic union is, what supralapsarianism is. She doesn't know the difference between a Calvinist or an Arminian. She cannot give you a defense or a, a, a criticism of paedo-baptism. These are all the things that theologians with scotch and cigars and elbow patches fight about every single day, and they are weighty and important issues. They do matter. They have consequence. But none of them in themselves, is essential to a person who is far from God beginning a relationship with Jesus Christ. Every encounter begins with saying, do you know Jesus? Because if you've never met him, that's the most important thing about you. You'll have a lifetime to spend learning this stuff. Okay? But if you don't know that 2 plus 2 equals 4, 2 plus 2 gamma in parentheses is meaningless to you. The rudimentary message of the Christian faith is simply this. That a person who is far from God can begin the process of coming home by having an encounter with Jesus Christ who seeing the worst about them will love them in the midst of that brokenness nonetheless. And that in that acceptance of a fallen and dark and dirty human being, through the offering of free cleansing by no virtue or work of our own, a person can finally be rid of the stain and taste something that quenches their deep thirst. You know, a lot of us feel like maybe our calling is supposed to be to be expert witnesses. In a court of law, there's two kinds of witnesses, aren't there? There are expert witnesses 
who went to Harvard and they studied blood spatter or ballistics and they were nowhere near the scene of the crime, but they know everything about the technical forensics. And so they come and give testimony. They get paid like $50,000 to help sway the case one way or the other. And that's, the off, that's their contribution to the court proceedings is that they give expert technical information that helps the jury decide. But then you have people like, what's his name, Antoine Dodd? Do you remember him? These viral videos that get all over YouTube. And that person is ranting and ranting about what they saw. They have only one qualification for being in the limelight. I was there. I saw it. I don't know anything about blood spatter. I'm not even sure why I'm using that, that accent. But everybody I hear giving eyewitness testimony on YouTube sounds something like that. I was, you know, the only claim to fame is I done seen it. I was right there. I don't know anything about blood spatter or ballistics. But I know what I saw. And I'm going to tell you right now what I know. I think that's the primary calling to most Christians. It's to tell someone, there was a day in my life when Jesus was nothing to me. I had no idea he was important. I ignored him every day. And then there came a day when he invaded my life and I met him. I had an encounter. And when I entered that relationship with him, nothing was the same after that. Now, since then, I have picked up an encyclopedic knowledge of this religion. But at the end of everything, it all boils down to one thing. Just like the great theologian Karl Barth said to an interviewer, Dr. Barth, what is the greatest theological insight you've gained in all your decades of studying the Christian faith? And he simply said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. All the reporters went home really ticked off. But I think every Christian who's ever heard that quote was pierced in the heart by what we've forgotten. If that's the greatest truth Karl Barth could testify to, what do we believe our message ought to be to a world who needs Jesus Christ? And what I love is that the story records that these people were so compelled by her invitation to come and meet a man who could be the Savior that many of them followed her out of town into the outskirts and heard him preach. And many came to faith because they believed in her testimony. I think in the months to come, you're going to hear more at this church, as will the people at Harvest, about the privilege of watching people far from God come home through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And have you ever been in a room where everybody's just sort of like farting around, there's no energy, and then someone brings a newborn baby into the room? Did you ever see the way the room lights up when a baby is carried into the room? Everyone suddenly comes alive, especially the women. Oh! And like this whole dead room comes to life because a baby was carried in. See, I, I really feel like our churches need to experience 
the wonder of somebody for whom everything we do, this communion. Can I be honest with you? After 30 years of walking with Jesus and eating hundreds of saltine cracker bits and thimblefuls of grape juice, I struggle on a regular basis to remember the deep meaning of communion. Don't get stumbled. You can judge me if you want to. I'm just being honest with you. I know it has meaning up here, but it has become so familiar that I have to prepare my heart to capture the true wonder of what those elements mean. But once in a while, I see somebody who's learning about this for the first time, and they're crying because they remember what it means that the body was broken for them and the blood was spilled for them. It's still fresh. Just like when the girl has just broken up with you and your favorite song comes on the radio and you can't stop crying. You know, those involuntary feelings of emotion. And when I see the newness of that faith, it reminds me of when Jesus was new in my life. When there was a world of discovery yet to be made and I was still so excited to know him. And I long for that day again. I'm reminded of the power of the gospel to save people like me who go to retreats to pick up girls. I was the most ugly, unlovable human being the day that Jesus Christ saved me. Is that right, Steve? My own brother had no respect for me. He didn't even like me in particular. Jesus loved me when I was at my most unlovable. I don't think I'm ever going to get over that. When this lifestyle gets to be too much, this calling gets to be too much, there's one place I retreat to every time. And that is a day in August of 1994 when Jesus Christ saved my life. And he loved a flake like me who had no right to lay claim to that love. That's my story. It's really the only story I have that's worth anything. And there are so many people in your life that you care about who are waiting for that to become their story. And I think it's one of the ways that many of us are going to finally experience the revival that we've longed for is by giving away this faith and seeing in its saving power what an amazing God that we have. I invite you to bow with me in prayer. Most messages about evangelism play on feelings of regret and guilt and duty. But I don't think that's the right way to ever talk about evangelism. I think the driving motivation for evangelism is love. I mean, we only give away our best things to people we actually love. Isn't that right? Free of charge, I have done advertising for motion pictures, bands, restaurants, technology gadgets. When I find something good that adds value to my life, I will, with great excitement, tell anyone I care about so that I will bless them with the same thing that has blessed me. 
The underlying motive for all evangelism is love. And I know each one of us has people that we genuinely love who don't have a relationship with Christ. And there are so many reasons that we don't feel comfortable adding that dimension to our relationship. I've been hindered by so many of those reasons myself. This year, for some reason, God's got a hold of my spirit regarding evangelism. And I've started taking some big risks. And I'm amazed at what God is doing. So I want to invite you to think about the people you love who don't know the love of Jesus Christ. And I want to ask you to pause and ask God to give you a deeper burden of love for those people so that with great compassion and urgency and boldness, you will take those relationships to another place. You will make some risky moves. Put your reputation on the line to speak about Jesus Christ to people who are waiting to hear about him. So I'm going to stop talking now and I'm going to invite us just to pause where we are and think about the faces and the names of the people we care about and ask the Lord to give us a privilege of one day ushering them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Mm -hmm.